Hey y'all, this is Corey, FCF Fit. On this uh, episode, I just wanted to give you all a heads up. There's going to be some noises that you're going to hear with some weights being picked up and put down in the background. It wasn't as loud as we thought it was um, until I heard it back here. So it could be a little distracting. just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So turn the volume up on this one if you're having a hard time hearing. That only goes on for about the first 30 minutes of this podcast. Apologies on the front end there. Um, but uh, you guys are troopers. You'll get through it. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Find Your Fit podcast. And without any further ado, here is episode 23. Hey everybody, this is Corey with uh, FCF Fit, and this is the latest episode of the Find Your Fit podcast. And today I've got Augie Galindo of Testosterone Centers of Texas with me today. Augie, thanks for coming out. Absolutely. Thanks How are for you? having me. Absolutely. So excited to have you here. How have you been? I've been doing really well. Good Just, deal. Uh, grinding away. Yeah, yeah. How's the new year started off? Really well. It's been a, it was a rough year of 2018. A lot of changes on our side of things business-wise, and so we kind of hit a few hiccups, but we're, we're able to stay with at the end of the year, and we're looking forward to a, a very productive 2020. Okay. Good deal. Good deal. Us, too. Um, I can tell you we, um, we definitely... I was ready for 2020 uh, back in back in November of 2019. Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, real quick, you know, you're, you're you're with Testosterone Centers of Texas. Correct. Um, and centers being plural, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that before we get started? Absolutely. So we are a hormone replacement practice focused on testosterone replacement therapy. We started our practice in 2013, and now have five locations in the DFW area. It's myself and three other partners who are in ownership together. Uh, and so this is our passion. We seek to help as many people as possible who are suffering with the effects of low testosterone and improve their quality of life. Our big mandate is that we just do that safely. So a lot of people do what we do. Uh, we feel that we have a very patient-centric uh, approach that is needed in this field. So yeah, that's what we strive to achieve. Okay, well, good deal. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's definitely um, you know a hot topic. Obviously, you know. The, the old cliche saying of, God, you're so hormonal, um, you know, and it's typically, uh, unfortunately, it's directed typically to one side, you know, sure. the, the female side of the equation. But, you know, obviously men have their issues with uh, their horm- their being hormonal as well, right? So, um, well, real quick, before we get into, you know, all the nuts and bolts of, of you know, what you do, why you do it, how you do it, um, how, you know, let's maybe back up a little bit and just talk about real quick, kind of let the people get to know you. Um, where'd you grow up? Grew up in Odessa, so West Texas, okay, football okay. country. Oh yeah, oil, yeah, Odessa, oil and football. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Um, so, do you, do you have family in, in the oil business, or no? Actually, everything uh, my family did was always outside of it. And okay. It's kind of made it easy to get up and get out of the area. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, if you were not making your living in oil uh, in that area, for the most part, you know, it's it's easier to pick up roots, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a hotbed for that, and certainly still. So. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember, uh, you know, the Odessa Permian, I think, what was it, what, what year was that 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 team just destroyed everybody? Was it 80? 89. 89. Yeah, okay. in 89, they won the national championship by ESPN, yeah. and that's when the book was written from uh, Friday Night Lights, became right. a movie, and yeah, so it's a big storied event. A lot, a lot of uh, football tradition there. Definitely. For sure, yes. for sure. So what, when, when did you get out of Odessa? 
So I left there in 96 and okay. just moved down the road to Midland. Okay. I was on the fire department there for six years uh, before going back to school. So stayed in that area and, and through that point, then through PA school, which was actually in Midland, uh -huh. even though it's through Texas Tech's Health Sciences Center, my physician assistant program is in Midland. And then there in 05, that's what brought me out here to the Dallas area. Okay. So you were you were on the fire department. I was. Okay, yes. right on. Um, <clears throat> how did you like that job? Yeah, I loved it. The, the camaraderie, the, the the adrenaline, the you know everything that you think about as a kid growing up, thinking you want to fight fire. That was wow. all there. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that, that that was my sole focus going into it. I just wanted to fight fire because I finally stumbled upon a job that kind of ignited passion for me. Right. I've worked in pharmacies. I've worked in warehouses. I did sales for a while before landing at the Attorney General's office, which oh, is the wow. job that I was doing before I entered the fire academy. And after a brief stint in the oil field, which uh, confirmed the fact that I did not want to be in the oil field, <laughs> I ended up getting hired on the fire department. Um, I became a paramedic so that I could be hired as a fireman. It, it, yeah. it bumped me up the list. <clears throat> so right after finishing paramedic schools, when I got hired, this was in 90, 98, sorry. And so in June of 98, I started the career thinking all I wanted to do was fight fire. But during that year of paramedic school, it, that kernel of interest in, in medicine over everything else kind of took over. Okay. And then once I realized that, you know, in newer construction, there's not a lot that burns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that most of what you do on the fire department when you're integrated with EMS is EMS or emergency yeah. medical services. So I was on the ambulance most of the time. Still got to fight a few good fires, but most of the time you're just riding around in the ambulance helping people in, in yeah. that regard rather than, you know, saving kittens and running in the burn. <laughs> so um, from there, it was, uh, what can I do to kind of expand my scope here? And so I worked in the emergency room as a tech for a while, got exposed to mid-levels. Um, it's a term that we often use for people who are not physicians, but not nurses. So I, I, I have a master's degree, not a doctorate, but I still see patients, prescribe, treat, everything you would expect a doctor to do okay. is basically what I do as well. Uh -huh. but I'm not a physician. I'm a, a certified physician assistant. But um, I got exposed to them for the first time in that process. And so the next step was, well, where do I go from here? How do I still further expand that scope? I did flight transport for a while, so I was on the helicopter oh, cool. fixed wing for a couple of years. Um, I was actually doing that um, when September 11th went down. And so being in the air and you know, yeah. when that stuff happened oh, is strange man. and, and uh, yeah, sure. very, very Puckering. eerie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things that you just don't expect to have happen in that time frame. But... Uh, those experiences still just kind of whet my appetite for wanting to do more in patient care. So the decision from there was medical school and all the debt and time mm -hmm. or physician assistant school and I get to do what I want to do. I don't have the same title, and, but I'm not going to take on all the debt. Right. It just ended up being the best fit for me. Um, so the natural graduation from there was still staying in emergency medicine. <clears throat> After graduating from Texas Tech Health Sciences Center, um, in 05, I immediately started a career here in Dallas um, and was working in the Methodist healthcare system as a physician assistant. And then also in the uh, medical, at the time it was Medical Center Plano, another part of it, they're part of ACA, so it's Medical City Plano. I did that uh, through 2010. I was still in emergency medicine. Okay, all right. Was, um, we're actually, let me back up real quick. Did the movie Backdraft have any influence on you? I gotta say briefly, you know, okay. it, it, I can tell you that it's one of those things that, like anybody else, they see something that's 
uh, representative of their field and yeah. start picking it apart. So it, it totally just dismantled all of the, the fantasy that went along with watching Backdraft uh-huh. after realizing that you, know, you can't run in a burning building without a mask and you know, your coat flapping open in the breeze right, yeah. as you stand in the doorway all heroic. Just that, that stuff doesn't happen. Right, so, okay. uh, yeah, I, I would say that it fueled the fire of those those little kid uh-huh. uh, you know, ideas of hero- uh-huh. heroism and, and fighting fire, but uh, they, those fantasies were quickly dashed once you... You know, once you stick her out and get into a 1400 degree room, it's a little bit different. <laughs> and I can't imagine feeling that kind of heat. Uh, it was, it's, uh, it's sobering for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so the PA program itself, I mean, it seems like, I mean, obviously there's, there's it seems to me, and this is again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ignorant to the MD versus the PA, but it seems that the PA can do just about everything that the MD can do. Right? Sure. I mean, obviously, minus surgical probably interventions, right? right? Those are going to be the biggest things. And, and a physician assistant always works under the supervision of the doc. Okay. Now, that has taken on a, a new form from where it probably initially started out as. And it's worth noting that for physician assistants, they, they started in, I believe it was 1967. No They've been around that long. Yeah, it's been around Okay, yeah, I didn't realize. But it started out with four Navy corpsmen. Actually, they, the people who created the program were first seeking to use nurses as their their launch pad, if you will. They're going to take okay. RNs and then make them into this this non-physician provider. Yeah. Right? But at the time, the nursing field said, no, we don't want to have any part in that. So they went with Corman. And, and so they're advanced trained, right? I mean, the, the, the skill set that they brought to the table was both different, but also really advanced over anybody else in that right, subset, right. right? So it started with Duke uh, University. Those first four kicked off the PA program. It was only a few years later when the nurses realized that maybe we shouldn't have turned the software down, and so yeah. the nurse practitioner field uh, was birthed after that. Uh, but the the models are different, uh, but you can, for the most part, depending on what part of the country in you're in, you can consider it nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants to be pretty much synonymous. But nurse practitioners are, are are built or, or trained in the nursing model, okay, and PAs are trained in the medical model, gotcha. meaning that you have a continuation of nursing theory and, and processes that help make a nurse practitioner a nurse practitioner, right? Whereas with a physician assistant, um, we are trained the, very much the same way that doctors are. Okay, so the the curriculum upon which the physician assistant program was initially created was basically the same blueprint that they used to make doctors a little faster during World War II when they weren't able to meet the demand. Mm-hmm. Right? They had to kind of pull out some of those extraneous classes uh-huh. and while beneficial, they weren't critical to be being a good and, and efficient clinician. Gotcha. Right? So gotcha. it kind of pairs down to that. And it's still seven semesters back to back to back. So it's you know two and a half, three year program after your undergrad. Okay. And then you're, you're going to endure over 2,000 hours of clinical uh, preceptorship time before you ever touch a patient on your own as a certified physician assistant. So um, it, it's a rigorous schedule. Yeah. Um, it's pound for pound. Just um, you know, I think a lot of physicians might not want to hear me say this, but it, it's pound for pound. Often is difficult to get into as medical school because of the the demand for it. Okay. <clears throat> so it's a, a lot of the same prerequisites. Most of my classes, uh, especially in the clinical side, I was taking alongside medical students. And, mm. so, and, and certainly in the rotations during that last clinical year where that's all you're doing is the patient hands-on stuff. I was rotating with the, the same people that would maybe, maybe later be my supervising physician or that, that sort of thing. Okay, so, okay. Uh, that's, that, so you that's guys are chewing some of the same dirt then with, uh, with those folks. Right. Okay. 
Um, so from a, a time perspective, you said it's seven semesters. Seven semesters without a break. So okay. Boom, each, straight through. Yeah, exactly. There, there were very little time to breathe. Um, so I think out of those seven semesters, my lightest clinical load was an 18-hour semester. Okay. And we started wow. in the summer session of 2003. That was the lightest? That was the 18 lightest. hours? Yeah, we went up to, I think, 22 or so. And so you have to write a master's thesis in there some, somewhere. And when I started this, I was um, just coming off of a divorce, and I was working full-time with the fire department still and doing some other side jobs like yeah. every fireman does. You were stacked. And then I was the, the class president, so there was, there was a lot of concern about whether I was going <laughs> to make it there yeah. or not. The director pulled me aside and said, hey, we don't, we don't think you should be working at all, much less full-time and all these other jobs. Right. Right? You're stupid. You're going to mess up your, your shot here. So, of course, like the bullheaded person I am, I buckled down and I knocked a hole in every test in the first semester. Yeah. Right. Did really well academically the first semester. The rest of the time I was good with Bs. Okay. <laughs> Just, okay. uh, yeah, I had to prove that I could do it and then I dialed it back and learned the stuff very well. But it's, you know, there's a huge amount of, of learning of things that often end up on the cutting room floor when it comes to yeah. drilling in for an A. And for right. me, it was always about that patient experience. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I focused on. Well, I mean, that's good to know. I mean, obviously, that uh, I think that gets... That gets overlooked a lot, you know, sure. uh, in this day and age with all the changes in healthcare and Absolutely. you know insurance and things like that. So, um, and real quick, just touching. I mean, we don't have to get specific numbers, but the cost of a PA program versus an MD program. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, depending on it, going surgical or just general practitioner, right, mm-hmm. can vary quite a bit, I'd imagine. Sure. Um, but I guess average, you know. I was lucky enough to be in the Texas Tech uh, PA program before they went up to graduate level pricing. So I was basically paying undergrad pricing okay. in state tuition from Texas Tech. So it was a state tuition from 2003 through 2005. Um, <clears throat> and I had done my undergrad, um, basically the fire department helped pay for that. And I was, you know, that was, I, did, I went into it with no debt. Right on. So um, at the end of that for me, I think I was probably at the like 120 mark, but uh, it's much more expensive than that now. The, once you get to graduate level course okay. pricing, that being said, it is the amount of money that you need to create enough time and space for you to get that through that three years, mm-hmm. plus or minus undergrad. Whereas for medical school, it's four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, three years of residency, plus some fellowships. And you're, yeah, so the time commitment is, is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, not ridiculous, but certainly uh, difficult. Definitely. Let me put yeah. it that way. So you're looking at least 12 years and on that track. Wow. And, and Throughout the majority of that, as a resident, you're not earning doctor money. You're, right. you're still just racking up the debt. Yeah. So yeah. Mo- most physicians come out of their entire program, again, through residency, maybe fellowships and, and on, with a large amount to pay back. So yes, they have high income potential, but uh, there's there's a lot of catch up to be done yeah. as well. That just, you know, right there, I mean, and just painting that picture, I mean, I don't see why anyone, unless you're wanting to be a surgeon, sure. would want to go the MD route. For me, that, that's, that was kind of me. I knew that I wanted to expand my scope of practice, but I knew I wanted it to still be hands-on, mm-hmm. not the surgical side. That that was nothing that ever caught my attention. If you gotcha. So knowing the track that I at least wanted to start out on, which was emergency medicine, and the kinds of things that I got to do, there are only a handful of processes or procedures that I could not do as a PA that I could do as a physician. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see a physician assistant cracking somebody's chest in the ER and you know clamshelling their rib cage so okay. you can go and do a cardiac massage. But you know central lines, um, 
managing traumas and, and strokes and, and heart attacks and all all the the other meaty stuff, you know, setting broken bones, all the stuff that just kind the of the yeah, those things all yeah, <laughs> all that stuff just kind of um, was something I could develop into and, and, and because of my background and the, the docs that I worked with and the, the trust that we were able to engender we we um, got to a spot where I was really loving all all, all those things that I could do. That the yeah. scope is what I wanted. That, that's, okay. that's where I got to. Um, but the the overall reach of, of you know having to be called doctor, having an MD or a DO, that that, that wasn't the allure for me. And the, the kicker was I I like I mentioned had come across a couple of physician assistants and a couple of nurse practitioners and they all seemed very happy with their jobs and their oh. positions and their future and of course doing what I did I knew a lot of physicians as well I, I selected the 10 docs that I respected the most and knew the best right. and asked them all the same question would you do it again yeah every single one of them said no wow every single one now some of it a bit more tongue-in-cheek some of it you know emphatic yeah just it, it ran the gamut but Overall, yeah, overall they, 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 weren't, yeah, they weren't all that happy with it. Nah. And, and, you know, perhaps their, their perspective will change and, you know, over the course mm. of their career, but at the time, they're in the throes of it and they weren't super happy. Yeah. So I didn't feel like that was my road. Well, that's, you know, I mean, obviously having, having some insight of some people that have been there, done that, is uh, very, very beneficial um, for you to, to make a, a sound decision, right? Absolutely. Uh, you don't want to get into something and spend... 12 years of your life racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to not be happy doing it without you know so and you know the the PA route was always something that when I'd heard about it and heard friends that were doing that program and that sounds like a really good deal Mm -hmm. just because of it seems that the overheads less the time commitments obviously significantly less Mm -hmm. on the front end um, but there's so much more upside, you know, you're not necessarily having to open your own practice and take on all that liability and the Correct. insurance that comes with that. Um, so it just seems like a, a complete win, 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 win. Right. You know? and, and that's how I looked at it. And I'll tell you one of the things that I didn't really value at the time, just because I hadn't thought about it in that, that way was the fact that I can pick up and move the specialties whenever I'd like. Yeah. So most physicians who are going to employ a PA they're, they're going to realize that they just want a, a strong clinical mind and they're willing to teach anybody who's teachable. And so that means I can pick up and start an ortho job in, in orthopedics, even though I've never done that. If I can talk with a physician saying, look, this is something new to me, but I'm a quick learner and I'm gonna do everything I need to do to become great at this too, right. then I can just move specialties. I don't have to go back and be reboarded in orthopedics. Gotcha. I can work for a, somebody in surgery, somebody in pediatrics, and that that wide open array of right. possibilities is something that is really attractive now. And it's what led me kind of to where we're at here, right, is the fact that I did ER for five years, and then I was in internal medicine for two years, and okay. that's through that process yeah, ended up here in, in you know, testosterone replacement. And it, this is something I never studied for in, in school. Nobody does, really, you know, yeah. unless you're going through to become a urologist and you're probably not going to be looking at this all that much. Right, right. Um, but it's the, the fact that I was in a position to be able to just pick up and move and then through that, throughout that time had developed the skill set to learn a new uh, field and, and try to do my best to perfect it. That, that was something that just all came together the right way. Okay, okay. Yeah, so let's 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 uh, let's lean in that direction. Um, so, oh five, you get out, you graduate, um, you, you get into your your first, I guess, PA role, mm-hmm. 
Um, and so let's fast forward to when you started TCT. What, why testosterone therapy for you? Totally by accident, honestly. <laughs> so at the time I was living in Las Colinas and a, a, an acquaintance of mine, I could really not even say that we're more than just acquaintances, right. that lived two houses down from me in the same neighborhood, was also a physician assistant. Okay. <clears throat> he had spent his career to date at that point, I think it was 10 years, um, in GI, gastroenterology. He worked for um, Dr. Young, who's one of our owners now, and Dr. Young has a thriving practice in gastroenterology with Digestive Health Associates of Texas, which I believe at one time was the largest specialty group in the country, so a good, solid group. And he'd done a, done a phenomenal job bringing up his practice. And Glenn was a, Glenn Stevenitis, one of my partners, was a, an integral part of that. Well, Glenn went to PA school with William White, another one of my partners, okay. and they became fast friends, so they spent a lot of time with each other, they knew each other very well. Um, it was actually Bill, who first started on testosterone therapy somewhere around 2000, I think it was 2010, 2011. And and it was him coming in to the clinic to get his weekly injections and scrubs that made the owner's wife kind of track him down and say, hey, what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a PA. So he immediately was was trying to recruit him. Okay. Trying to recruit him to a job. Bill was in neurosurgery, spent uh, uh, 10 years in in that track. and then Glenn was in gastroenterology. Glenn had a, a knee injury. Uh, it sidelined him from being able to do the clinical role of rounding the hospitals and doing all that. Okay. And so he needed to find a, a different job, a different right. role. Well, he landed at the place that was trying to recruit his buddy, Bill. And that's, that was uh, the Latisse Center, our now competitor, our then employer. Okay. So Glenn was the first one on the table. That was early 2011 by Late 2011, he recruited Bill to come to the Low-T Center as well. <clears throat> and then fast forward to me coming to the table. This was now April of 2012. 2012 in okay. April of 2012, I had a job in internal medicine. I was doing home care, going through the kind of the indigent uh, Medicare population into their homes every month, trying to keep them from bouncing back to the hospital if they've been discharged, or okay. trying to keep the more acute illnesses under control. And it was a totally different type of medicine than I, I practiced in the ER. In the, right. in the emergency room, it's all about life-threatening stuff. Yeah. Let's get you through. You, know, you, you establish rapport, rapport quickly, and, and you realize that you're probably intervening in somebody's worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's certainly compassion involved, but it's just it's short-term. It's episodic. Gotcha. This was totally different. Now I'm managing this patient-provider relationship over months, over years. Yeah. You get to know people a lot better when you're sitting on their couch and you're, you know, having to move their personal effects out of the way to, to have a conversation with them. Right. So that that's where I was, and I really loved that job. I, I had the opportunity to kind of make my own schedule. It was good for my family. I was no longer on half days, half nights, every other weekend, every other you know major holiday, like I was in emergency medicine. But uh, because we're serving Medicare uh, patients and Medicare um, is a system that is wrought with fraud, they, they came to my attention much too late that my boss, my supervising physician at the time, uh, was one of those bad actors. Oh, so wow. around, actually I think this was leap day of 2012 when uh, they entered the clinic, I wasn't there, but they entered the clinic, guns drawn, FBI, OIG came in and cleared out the practice, made everybody stand outside, they're, they're under gunpoint, and, and they cow. come in, 
They clean everything out. They take every computer, every file, that everything gets wiped out. So the practice is dead. Overnight, I'm out of a job. Jeez. Done. And again, these patients are still there. They need care, but I'm literally unable to do anything with that. So I had to find a new place, too. Yeah. Well, I remember my acquaintance, Glenn, saying he had left gastroenterology and had landed in the testosterone replacement world, but didn't ask anything else about it because I knew nothing else about it at the time. And that night when I realized I didn't have a job yeah. and I start getting on all the, uh, the, the boards to find one and, and, and look at uh, job offers, several were coming up in that testosterone replacement field. So this was kind of a burgeoning thing for at least me. Uh, I hadn't really paid any attention to it at this point. And, and, and uh, there were four or five places advertising for it and realized that later those were four or five different headhunters offering the same job. Oh, gotcha. But when I spoke to, went down, you know, walked down to my, my acquaintance's house, my buddy's house, and knocked on his door and said, hey, I see some uh, job opportunities here. I'm, I'm going to need to take a job really quickly. I'd rather not be in the hospital and have to wait all the three, four months for credentialing. I need something now. And um, when I told him what I was looking at, I said, you know, that's probably the company I'm working with. Let me just uh, see if I can make a phone call here. And right. So got me in touch with the director of operations. <clears throat> Turned out that the job they were hiring for was the low T centers opening in Las Colinas, just a mile and a half from my house. Oh, wow. So it got the job, worked out, and uh, I was the third guy to the group. So now three of the owners of testosterone uh, centers in Texas now worked at the low T center. So I opened up their 14th clinic in March of 2012 and grew that to about 700 I think we were coming up on 800 visits the month that I left. It was only seven months later in October of that year. Uh, through that time frame, we certainly saw the highly positive effects that testosterone replacement was having on the lives of our patients. Uh, at that time, we, the OT Center treated only men, so that's all, all we were familiar with. And uh, I definitely saw the, the business side of it. Obviously, there's you know people coming through and you kind of have an idea of what's going on with right. it. I had no business training whatsoever, but I'm also not blind, so that you know, there was that. Um, what I found, and you know, this is not a knock on anybody, because even though I opened their 14th clinic in 2000, March of 2012, they now have 46, I think, stores nationwide. So they've done a phenomenal okay. job of growing. Uh, but our focus was just different. We were clinicians coming to it and recognizing the business side as opposed to business people coming to it and managing the clinical side. Gotcha. Our, our, our frame of reference was simply different. Right, different lenses. Correct, yeah. and there were things that we wanted to do differently and we thought were very important to do differently and we just weren't able to change it from the inside out. Gotcha. Um, so that just meant that we had to either deal with it or branch off and do it on our own. Yeah. And so that's the route we took. Uh, we um, In July, in 2012, uh, the other two guys uh, brought me to the table to the conversation that they'd been having since November of 2011, mm -hmm. and the analy analytical side of me needed more than just like bullet points on a piece of paper. I, I drew up a 25-page business plan, I created the performas and the projections, and kind of brought them back to them and said, hey, here, here's what I see. Yeah. I'm in. And that's kind of when everything got kicked off, and so by... October of that year, when I was leaving uh, the OT Center, we'd already filed our, our October twelve, right? Yeah. Right, sorry, uh, October of uh, two thousand twelve. Uh, we'd already launched everything we needed to on the, the paperwork side and, and uh, formed the entity. Then, so we then is you know, pulling funds and starting to learn how to build a clinic and and a business along with it. So right. that was 
that's a lot everything. of working parts. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and a lot of learning curve. For sure. You know, again, just coming into it, um, I certainly fell uh, victim to the fallacy that since I knew how to run a clinic medically, that I just kind of assumed that I knew how to run everything else. I think, you know, this is just my personal opinion, but I think a lot of people in medicine suffer from that same delusion right. that you're a fairly smart individual if you can accomplish these things. And so if I'm good at this, well, business shouldn't be a big deal. I was completely wrong, <laughs> and, and it was something that became rapidly apparent, and so it was time to go back to school without, um, hopefully, you know, at, at that time I chose not to, of course, enroll in the school. It was it was a lot of um, podcasts. It was a lot of audiobooks, and if I, if I turn a page on a book, I fall asleep. I, I, I can't yeah. do a paper book, <laughs> um, but to make ends meet, uh, the first year, nobody was drawing a salary, and we were sharing the work of one clinic between the three of us. Uh, the three PAs and so that meant I was only in the clinic two days a week but I needed to support my family right. so I was living in Las Colinas I was you know, commuting to Rockwall and, and so on a good traffic day that is still over an hour one oh, way yeah. Yeah. and I, I found a couple of books that just kind of got me going and, and I became my own kind of hostage student in, in that in that car driving back and forth uh, my little Prius that I was driving at the time, stuffing my big self into a Prius, and that, that's what got me learning about the business aspect of things and kind okay. of changing, again, my own lens to adapt to those things that I did not know. Right, right. Yeah, so you're driving all the way from Las Colinas to Rockwall. What a haul that must have been. I, uh, I used to live in Roy City. Okay. And I would drive from Roy City to Las Colinas. Yeah, that's a big deal. I worked at Microsoft. <laughs> and that was, yes, an hour and 15 minutes easy if the traffic was rolling. Yep, you know, exactly. So, you know, my day became three hours on the road. Right. You know, just you praying know, that total, 30 wasn't just uh, a total bottleneck of the bridge. Right? It was nuts. <laughs> yeah, so I do not miss those days whatsoever. Sure. Um, all right, so uh, you guys, so what, so what is your, you know, now you're obviously an integral part of TCT. You are one of the founding partners of TCT. Right? Correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, and how many clinics do you all have now, you said? We have five now. You have five now in the Metroplex. Correct. Um, you've got, uh, the closest one to here is? We actually have two that are kind of equidistant. We have okay. one in Frisco, which is just south of us, and then we have one in Prosper, which okay. is just northeast of us. Okay, great. West, so Frisco and Prosper. Yep. Uh, and then your other three locations are where? Louisville. Okay. And then Hearst, Flower Mound, and sorry, that's it. There we go. There are three. Okay. So we, we opened Louisville first. That was March of 2013. We opened Frisco in May of 2014, Hearst May of 2015, and then didn't open another one until 2018. We opened Flower Mound in January, and then Prosper in July. Wow. Yeah, you guys are been busy. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. That's um, that's some solid growth. Uh, and obviously, there's a need. <clears throat> yes, right? there definitely is a need. So let's talk about that need, and you know, the the, the, the little joke that runs around is, uh, you know, you got that low T, right. you know, and, and and guys joke around about that, but um, I think there definitely is, um, you know, some some <laughs> merit behind that because sure. people do joke about it, but it's not a joke. Right, and, and you know, it, it famously became a joke on the presidential election last cycle, right? It was kind of the low T, yeah, <laughs> but the. At the heart of it is a, a healthy sense of, of pessimism is always good, I think, when you're evaluating potential medical treatments. But sure. you also need to realize that sometimes those jokes strike at something that has truth to it as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the symptoms of low testosterone, if you're suffering with hypogonadism, 
the things that I expect people to have would be fatigue. Now, typically, I, I, will, I characterize that as kind of a global fatigue. In other words, kind of a, an all-day, everyday thing, but gets worse throughout the day. As the day wears on, your energy levels continue to drop more so than you would expect given your activity levels or sleep patterns or anything else, right? Decreased libido. Decreased libido is the most specific symptom when it comes to testosterone deficiency. And this, these symptoms are the same for men and women. Right? Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't matter what the gender is, it's still the same um, experience, if you will. So that doesn't mean that everybody who has low testosterone has a low libido. Sometimes that part of your life is fine, right? but that's a, the more specific symptom. But you also have things like cognition. That was my big red flag symptom. I wasn't able to mentate the way that I had always done. I wasn't able to communicate the way that I was used to. I was having trouble finding words. I was actually doing this job for the Low T Center when I realized I was suffering with the same things. Wow. I was trying to reiterate to the patient that the all the, the stair-step ideas and, and processes that I wanted them to understand about mm-hmm. testosterone, and I knew it really well. This was, by this time, back-of-the-hand kind of information. Right. But I couldn't get the words out. Couldn't articulate that, that train would derail badly. <laughs> wow. yeah. So I just I felt like I was at the time I was thirty five and I felt like I was getting dementia already. I was wow. developing just a really difficult time just concentrating. So that was what got my attention. Also, difficulty sleeping. Mainly here we're talking about maintaining sleep. If you're having trouble initiating sleep, that's probably not a testosterone thing. But if all of a sudden or you know over a period of time you notice that. You no longer sleep as soundly. Things are waking you up that didn't before. Those are things that I, I would say are concerning for this kind of issue. Also, motivation. People often just lack the, the drive, not just sex drive, but just the, that vigor toward um, being active and productive. That starts to wane. Uh, certainly, the body composition changes. It's difficult to maintain or build muscle when your testosterone levels aren't appropriate, but it's easy to gain fat. So. You can stay the same weight, but change your body composition mm-hmm. in a negative way, and that testosterone can certainly be linked to that. Okay. Um, erectile dysfunction, which people often kind of link in with, obviously this would be the male thing, not the female thing, but <laughs> <laughs> erectile function is something that people kind of mesh with your libido, right. and it's not the same. Okay. Um, I, I often explain things in analogies, and so this is just one of those, and I tell people that if you're trying to differentiate the difference between having erectile dysfunction, which is the the inability to obtain or maintain a satisfactory erection throughout intercourse, then you need to look at the, the, the process behind it, the relationship between them. So tell people libido is like the desire for your favorite dessert. Mm-hmm. Let's say your favorite dessert's chocolate cake. You wake up in the morning and you're too busy to get breakfast. You're too busy to get lunch and you're breaking your diet because you just walk in the break room and there's a whole chocolate cake and it's free to eat to anybody who wants it. So you sit down and you devour the whole thing because you're just starving and it's your favorite. Right. If 45 minutes later somebody walks in with another slice of chocolate cake and says, hey, you want some cake? At that point you'd probably be like, no, no, I'm good, I'm, yeah. I'm okay. Right. <laughs> you don't, at that point, decide, I don't like chocolate cake anymore. It's not that it's not your favorite anymore. There's just no appetite. Right, and so if there's not a internal drive toward intimacy, that's what libido is all about. Yeah. So I always go back to that one and explain a little bit further because people often misunderstand what that really means. But those yeah, that a, conglomerate symptoms, it, yeah. and those conglomerate symptoms can be experienced in a, a one-off. It can be two or three of them. Typically, we look for somebody who's experiencing several of them, and there's not a single one of the symptoms of testosterone deficiency. 
that you can say isolated to testosterone deficiency. Okay. They can be explained by a bunch of other things. Um, so, you know, the naysayers say, well, if you're fatigued and you're irritable and you're um, gaining weight and all these things are happening, yeah, it could be low T, but it could be a thousand other things. Yeah. yeah. I agree. That's exactly right. It, yeah. could, it could be a thousand other things. So the next step is making sure that the numbers also tell the same story. So your history, your personal history, your symptoms, those are the key stuff. That's what matters more than anything. Because if you don't have symptoms, but your numbers are low, I'm doing you no favors by putting you on therapy. Right? It has to start with symptoms that are impactful, negatively impactful to your life. Yeah. If there's not a symptom to fix, then there's no reason to be on the treatment. Now, the next step is the numbers. If the numbers tell the same story and, and we meet the criteria from the endocrine society, from insurance, then yes, we have a firm diagnosis that we can, can put out there. But until both are married up, I don't put a patient on treatment. We end up treating about 60% of the people that come through our door. Okay. Now, I could be high-pressure cells and only care about the business side, and right. I, could, I guarantee I could push that number in, in a higher direction. Yeah. Uh, but we're all about putting the right patients on the right treatment for the right reason. And if you feel like you've darkened the doorstep of a place that's not intent on doing that, you need to leave. Yeah. Because the person who's looking at your labs shouldn't be doing it to try to get you on therapy. They should be doing it to make sure that you're the right patient on the right treatment for the right reason. No, I, I love to hear that. It's very refreshing. Um, you know, so it sounds like you guys, you guys take a very, very uh, hands-on approach to making sure that you're doing right for the Absolutely. patient. You know, doing right by the patient. And, and as you mentioned, just to, to reiterate, you know, getting the right person on the right uh, treatment plan. Yeah. Uh, and whether it's with you or not, Correct. you know, you're going to help them determine that, right? Right. There's been plenty of times when we come in and say, well, your, your numbers are lower, but they're not low yet. But no. I see these other things that you might want to look at. Right, right. But there's evidence that you might have sleep apnea. You might have hypothyroidism, which we treat that too. But the, the other things are important. And, and if I can't help identify that for a patient, then I'm not really doing my job well. Yeah. Let's, let's step back to some of those symptoms. Obviously, you know... Um, ED is going to be one that's obviously not going to apply to the female uh, side of the fence, but fatigue, libido, um, uh, cognition, um, sleep, motivation, and body comp, those are also applicable to both male and female. So it's not just males that you're seeing that will suffer from not at all. Um, this, 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 these types of problems. So, you know, maybe we go, let's, let's talk about the, the female side of the fence here. Mm -hmm. You know, you do see, do you see a lot of females? We do. Practice? Yes. So I would say the, the majority of our females are, are either peri or postmenopausal, right? They've already, they're going through or they're, they have gone through menopause. But I would say there's a very large contingency of women who are, I'd say, if I'm going to draw a line in the sand, 35 and up, that should be thinking about it a little bit more intently. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't use testosterone on any female who plans to have children in the future. Okay. There's just no studies that give me any sense of safety with what might happen to those follicles, the, the eggs and the ovaries that don't ever change or regenerate, right? Yeah. If a woman is born with the number of eggs she's going to carry for the rest of her life, and so that means everything that she's exposed to chemically or, how, or what have you, can affect those eggs and that's right. not anything that we can reverse and we can't replenish them. So I'm very careful in that regard. But if I have a female, regardless of her age, if she's past the point of fertility or, or wanting to maintain fertility, mm -hmm. 
then I would consider her a candidate for testosterone replacement. Okay. Um, again, it's in the, through the same lens. We've got to make sure that the symptoms are right. We have to make sure that the numbers are right. right. Uh, but yeah, they, they're going to experience the same thing, fatigue that gets worse throughout the day. Um, one thing I left out earlier was uh, irritability that I touched on at the end, but the, what, the pattern you usually see there is as energy levels decrease, irritability increases. So we get left with this horrible balance of mood mm -hmm. where we have a short fuse, we're tired, and anything sets us off, right? Um, part of that's owing to the fact that estrogen kind of feeds into irritability, and as testosterone levels decrease, estrogen levels seem larger with something we term estrogen dominance, meaning that you could have a totally normal estrogen level, but if it's not opposed by appropriate testosterone, and for women, progesterone levels, then it looms large. It acts as if it's high, even though it's not. And so that's where you see women dealing with more symptoms than you would see from PMS or mid-cycle changes. Uh, the, the hormonal shift that happens throughout the menstrual cycle for a female is dramatic. You're talking about low estrogen levels through the first half of the phase, which is the, the follicular phase, but then it takes a huge spike around day 12 that is part of the drive to induce ovulation. Okay. If we're talking about a, a textbook 28-day ovarian cycle, or menstrual cycle for a female, day one is the start of the period, day 12 is when estrogen levels are going to peak, around day 14 is when you're going to have ovulation occur, and then the estrogen levels that were really high start to drop precipitously. There's another small bump in the second half of the phase, which is the luteal phase, and then you have progesterone on a totally different track. Progesterone is really low during the first half, but then it becomes the dominant, or should become the dominant hormone in the luteal phase. So again, back to the estrogen dominance thing. If somebody is progesterone deficient, if a female is low in progesterone, then the estrogen level is higher than it would be, or has more influence than it should have because of that gap. So there's no way to warn the partner on what days to stay out of her way, <laughs> the, depending the, on the person. Depends on how open their calendar is. There's apps that can be shared. Yeah, there, there's plenty of you know, it, it, It's a bit, bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's something that I, I use to kind of drive a point home to my male patients, that when we're dealing with this hormonal shift that has them feeling you know, influenced by things that are really outside of their control, that, that 10 to 12 to 13-day mark, and then again, kind of when ovulation occurs, and, and then if things are in balance, it could be even more widespread. Yeah. And then you just fast forward to the you know, day 26, 27, 28 of the cycle and now PMS is being induced and then it starts all over again, right? But with a male patient who's on testosterone, their estrogen levels can increase and if we don't monitor that appropriately or, or, or keep it from getting too high, they can start feeling the effects of too much estrogen. Well, those same things happen. The irritability occurs, the bloating, fluid retention, weight gain, all those things that we've heard our partners complain about throughout the years is some certain suddenly just thrust upon a individual who's not equipped to handle high estrogen levels right? yeah men aren't built to have estrogen levels in the 300s like women can okay so when ours go above normal it's a problem and so this is actually what fuels roid rage people okay. think about testosterone and they think about roid rage right yeah. it's not a testosterone thing it's an estrogen thing so yes testosterone is made in estrogen in the male body and that's where we get our estradiol or estrogen but it's the estrogen levels being imbalanced or improperly mitigated that causes that issue that causes the the emotional shift so you take a type a personality who's probably abusing anabolics and who knows what else they're putting in their body because right. they're probably getting it from an illegal source and then you give them 
what I like I said is a bit tongue in cheek, PMS on steroids. Yeah. Quite literally. That is what drives that kind of crazed, hyper aggressive yeah. um, personality. Okay. And so it, it's happening in, in the against the backdrop of somebody probably is already tilted in that direction. Mm-hmm. But you know, still it, it's a horrible It doesn't do any favors. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. Okay, yeah. I have, I've written that down here as a question with you know, the whole um, uh, roid rage, you know, and the I guess possibly the, the negative um, correlation of testosterone. <clears throat> yep. You know, mm-hmm. obviously testosterone is a naturally occurring uh, chemical in our bodies. Yep. As we get older, that can be it reduces. It can mm-hmm. be reduced for whatever reason before it's supposed to, possibly, right? Correct. Um, so, but it has no. There's there's really no merit to say if you're on testosterone that you're going to have an opportunity to rage out or you know have roid rage because it's not the same thing. I'd say that's completely accurate. Yeah. The, the, the fear that you're going to get roid rage just because you're on a an optimized testosterone program, mm-hmm. then it's just not something we see. Yeah. You know, if we see irritability, it's minor. We treat it by, you know, of course, managing the, the source, but often that source is an estrogen level that's probably higher than it should be. Yeah. Those are those are things that, with the experience that we've gained, are, are actually pretty easy to manage. Okay. Good, good to know. Now, females <laughs> that, you know, that have, that go through menopause, they stop producing their, their own um, naturally occurring hormones, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they get on these hormone therapies or regimens um, I've heard horror stories where like you know women have completely changed like the, the husbands are like I don't know who this person is anymore since they're on this you know these these um, what's the word I'm looking for um, like birth control pills or, or yeah uh, I, gosh I'm sorry I'm having a maybe a brain cramp here uh, <laughs> not enough coffee this morning sure. uh, but um, basically you know their mood their, their, their disposition their personality completely changes yes. yeah. And it's because obviously they probably haven't got their hormone levels dialed in appropriately, right? right. So someone's or, not looking at those numbers close enough, right? right. And then that's, I would say the latter is certainly a big part of it. Because it is such an intricate weaving of movement of levels and, and how they all balance progesterone and estrogen and then testosterone thrown into the mix there. If you aren't realizing and taking the time to say, all right, this is what you've done over time, this is where you're at in your cycle, this is what should be higher, this is what should be lower, then you're going to miss a lot of information that helps you manage your patients appropriately. Too many times clinicians in general treat the lab sheet as their patient instead of the patient whose labs they're looking at, right? So that means they see a normal reference range, and we just key in on the word normal. And if that number falls anywhere within that range, then we're okay, right? But that's not medicine. That's not treating your patient because specifically with estradiol um, and women's cycles. There are times when that's supposed to be in the teens and 20s. And there are times during your cycle when it's totally normal for it to be in the upper 300s. Wow. That's that's a a huge swing. So if I see it, in the 20s when it should be in the 300s that's a problem if I see it in the 200s when it should be in the 20s still a huge problem right if I see the progesterone's low and it's in the first half of their menstrual cycle that's okay but if I see that it's low in the second half that's not okay it's in the normal reference range yeah. throwing air quotes here on the <laughs> podcast but the <clears throat> the problem is that we just don't slow down to take a look at the true of reference that we should be reacting from. So it, it, it's it's something that's come up in, in recent years that um, more women are being found to be 
progesterone deficiency, specifically in pregnancy, because now we're looking for it because we know that progesterone deficiency during pregnancy is potentially bad for maintaining the pregnancy. Yeah. Well, I would argue, and there's no study that I've looked at, even though there probably is one somewhere, but I would argue that a woman who is progesterone deficient during pregnancy is probably progesterone deficient all the time. Well, if you, this is a bit of a watered-down version, but if you think of estrogen as a proliferative or growth hormone, it, it helps produce a, a healthy uterine lining to mm. then create a hospital environment for a fertilized egg to carry through pregnancy. Well, it's progesterone's job to go in and order that and make sure that it's done in an efficient and productive manner. Okay. So that means you have one hormone driving the production, but another one making sure everything goes right. Well, what happens when you take away the one that's just supposed to make everything organized? Well, now you just have an overproliferation. You have more uterine lining than you should have, and it's not already doing exactly. So now, a woman with progesterone deficiency who's menstruating is likely to have a difficult, more difficult time when it comes to sloughing that uterine lining or their period. Right? There's mm-hmm. even more cramping because there's more material within the uterus that it's having to evacuate. So what happens? There's heavier blood flow, flow, there's more material, there's more clots, and the uterus is having to contract harder to get it out. So cramps are worse, mood is is off because progesterone is low, that means estrogen is dominant, right? So there's this whole balance of things that has to be taken into consideration. So when you treat those things, you have to think, well, how am I gonna treat it? Where are we at in the cycle? What do I need to push here and do that? it takes it, it's a lot more difficult to dial into the right spot for women it is it's just a, a, they're hormonally much more complex than we are um, but that doesn't mean that it can't be done and it doesn't mean that it's not right to do right um, what I see more often than not is when patients who are going somewhere that is not focused on hormone therapy mm-hmm. complain about these symptoms the first thing they get is our birth control because it regulates your cycle, yeah. it makes it not as heavy, and right. now we have an ordered fashion. Now this is something we recognize, right? But it's tricking your body into thinking you're pregnant when you're not, and it's not fixing anything. And usually, all the symptoms, other than the heavy periods and the cramping, are still there. Right. All right. the other things actually, again, kind of loom large because we completely neglected the source of the problem, which is yeah. really their their hormonal imbalance. Have you had any patients that? Um, suffered from endometriosis yes. that testosterone or hormone therapy testosterone therapy did it help them you know i've only or is had that a, something that's not you know i've only had a handful so i can't really say with any uh, definitive authority there but i can tell you that the couple that had come to mind uh, they actually were better in the process but uh, again you're kind of thinking about the hormonal influence it's estrogen level spiking uh-huh. without being opposed that is going to to ignite the the problems that occur with that endometrial tissue in other mm-hmm. parts of their body, right? And so if you can balance that hormonal influence, they do tend to do better. It doesn't mean it cures it, doesn't mean it gets rid of it, right? right. right. Um, but I, the, the couple that had come to mind that definitely did do better. Yeah, And so they okay. had fewer flares, they were less intense, that kind of thing. Oh, okay, good to know. Um, yeah, without you know getting in too much information, you know, I, I, uh, I, I know of, uh, a person who has endometriosis but also has suffers from what you were explaining with I think the progesterone being so high that it it doesn't allow the the lining to slough uh, off efficiently right severe cramping heavy flow just miserable yep. you know during during those times yep. um, but I and I know the endometriosis is probably completely separate from that and sure. that's its own thing right, right? but anything that uh, that could help you know minimize I think those those uh, symptoms 
would be welcomed. Yeah. You know, I have two sets of patients who I see the, the mother and daughter. And the, the, the mothers on both of these uh, sets of patients experienced those same kind of problems, and it led to such a life-altering event every month yeah. that they ended up having hysterectomy very early in their lifetime mm. um, that otherwise, had it not been for these symptoms, they probably would not have had. Right. Now, it's complete speculation on my part, and you know, right. I'll be clear that it is ex- speculation, but it was always my assumption with the older patient, the, the mother, that that you know you probably have this progesterone deficiency going on for a while, and then this is something that you probably could have managed. I think you might have been able to manage with hormone therapy without having to be surgerized, right? Because in my opinion, there's nothing you can't mess up without with a knife, right? I mean, there's there's going to be the potential for problems anytime you decide surgery is the option. So you have to weigh those yeah, options carefully. Sure. And so when we had the opportunity to have that discussion multiple times over, and then she brought me the information that her daughter's kind of fallen in that same track. We brought her daughter in, we did the workup, started her on progesterone, and now she has regular cycles, doesn't complain of the, the heavy periods all the time, and all, all those things that led to her mother ending up with a hysterectomy right. at the age of 32. Wow. Was, <clears throat> I, and, you know, at least with this one case, very anecdotal, but this one case, we were able to stop that. Yeah. You know, those those things that she was going to her OB-GYN or gynecologist uh, complaining about, they all stopped with just progesterone. Wow. Well, that's that's very promising to hear. I mean, I'm sure, that, I mean, if you're, ladies, if you are experiencing any of these symptoms, um, and this kind of sounds like you, gosh, uh, I think you you could be onto something here in helping get you some uh, some relief from Absolutely. that stuff, you know, because... OBGYNs, they may not, they're not, they're not focused on these numbers right. and, and these things. And I'm always careful to, to kind of throw that out there that I'm, I'm not at all knocking anybody's um, prowess or, or, or intelligence or any of that, but it, it does come down to what's in your wheelhouse, right? For sure. If, yeah. if, if you're swinging a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> That's the only tool you got in the box. Um, and so if you don't focus on this, it's really easy to get caught up in something else. And yeah. it is a lot easier to pull out the script and throw something at, at a problem. And while I realize I'm talking about treating problems with medication, these are, are interventions that are, are taken very seriously, that we kind of work through the problems mm-hmm. together. I, I always tell patients that as a patient myself, when I have to be one, I don't want somebody lording over me, you do this, you have to do this, this is the way. I don't like that dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, I'm not here to be somebody's paternalistic guide. I want to want to sit down, offer information, give a couple of pathways, and then arrive at a treatment plan that makes sense for everybody. Because when we're on the same page, that's when I'm going to be able to do my best work. Yep. And that that means that the patient's expectations are also on track with what we hope to see. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of chemical reactions that goes on in the human body, and and the uh, all the stuff that goes in, in into play with us functioning on a day to day basis. Uh, you know, it's it's mind-boggling Absolutely. to say the least, yes. and and the the intricacy that are the human body that makes the human body right. I mean, the Definitely. greatest machine ever ever made. Completely agree. Um, so real quick, let's uh, walk me through how somebody wants to to come in and uh, you know check see what's going on with them. What, sure. How how does that work for you guys? So it starts with a simple phone call. You can hit us on our website and send in a contact form. But ultimately, the first visit is when we are going to sit down and spend the most time going over history and, and all the information, the symptoms, everything that led you to 
having this land on your radar to begin with. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what everything starts with. And I focus a lot on that first. What symptoms are you having? How long have they been going on? What's the character of them? Have you had anything else going on in your life or with your body that might explain these things? I'm, I'm looking for disqualifiers as much as I am looking for qualifiers. Okay. Right? What, what are things that say, hey, this isn't it? And which things say, you know, this might be it. Who's there just looking to get their pump on? Correct, right? exactly. <laughs> and so what, once you have that information, then I have a, at least the, the rough sketch of where we're going with this. Then I spend the next probably 20 minutes or so talking about the good, bad, and the ugly of how we manage this. And I spend the bulk of that talk really focusing on the potential side effects. Because as with any medical intervention, there are potential side effects. Yeah. And we can drink enough water that it can kill you, literally. Right? Right, so right. that means if we do anything, if I give you anything, that might cause a problem. So with testosterone replacement therapy, since testosterone supplementation, if you will, has been around since the 40s, we do have a fairly long track record of it being used. Now, being used in this manner, I would say still fairly new, probably kind of peaked after 2000, so it's not a super long track record in that respect, but still, it's there. And so we know well what to look for. And okay. so that's what that whole next step is about. Let me, let me explain to you the ins and outs of what I see happening, what I want to see happen, and what might happen on the backside, and how we're gonna mitigate those issues. And so when I, I detailed that talk, that presentation, and kept changing it until I didn't get questions at the end of it anymore. Because to me that meant that if I'm answering everybody's questions beforehand, then I, it has what it needs, right? And so if I kept getting the same question, if I heard it more than twice, I wrote it down and I inserted it into the, the talk, if you will, right? right? yeah. And so by the end of it, I, I always ask the same question to my patients, do you have any questions for me? And almost always the answer is like, no, you, you already answered them all. So that's, that's that first visit. Of course, okay. labs are drawn then, and then we talk about it from there. But for a, a patient who's coming in for testosterone replacement, the criteria that exists that tells us whether or not you are a candidate for, for therapy is if in the morning before 10 a.m. in a fasting state, your total testosterone is below 300 for a male or below 9 for your calculated free testosterone on two separate occasions, that meets criteria for diagnosis. Women, it's actually still considered an experimental therapy, so the guidelines are a lot looser. Uh, but we still kind of hold the same things. I want to see a total uh, that's below usually 15 and then a free that's below 0 0.3. But the same kind of thing I want to see in the morning when your natural production's at its highest. We're not putting our thumb on the scale and trying to catch you when you're low. Mm. We're going to see, like, we're going to give you your best shot to do what you're supposed to do. If you're not doing it then, then we know without a doubt you're low. Gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. So, um, Going through, you know, those those stipulations, those guidelines, as far as when somebody is going to be a candidate, mm -hmm. um, how what methods do you use to apply uh, treatment for folks? So there are essentially three options, and this is part of that talk too. Is that there are injections, and I believe that weekly injections of testosterone are the best way to handle therapy. Okay. Um, there are topicals, which are creams, gels, or patches, and then there are pellets that are inserted or implanted under the skin, but above the muscle. So out of the three modalities, like I said, I, I very much prefer weekly injections and at risk for uh, sounding like the hair club for men guy from the 80s, uh, that's, the, that's the modality I too choose. I am on weekly injections as well. Uh, but with topicals, uh, what I'll tell you there is up to 40% of people don't absorb the medication. So if you're one of those unlucky 40%ers, you're not gonna get any benefit. It's pretty high. It is pretty yeah. high, yeah. And so the next step is, if you're in that 60% group, are you gonna be compliant with it? I can tell you that if you're a guy, 
Probably not, right? Most guys don't do anything every single day that they don't have to do, <laughs> even if it's as important as your testosterone. Right? So that, applying it right and, 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 and with regularity is the problem. But you can apply it right every single day. But let's say you have a job where you're a little more physical and you sweat heavily. Well, it's going to come off of your skin. Mm. If you put your shirt on too soon after application, well, that's going to come off of your shirt. Wow. If you okay. shower too soon thereafter, also, you just wash it right down the drain. And these are not inexpensive medications when you're dealing with the topicals, especially if you're dealing with like the name brand, and Androgel or any of that. Okay. Um, and then finally, for our younger um, contacts, I worry more about kids than I do our, our spouses, but they could come off on somebody else who doesn't need extra testosterone. You don't want to be holding an infant when you right. have a shoulder slathered with testosterone. Right? <laughs> so th those are things that... that steer me away from it. I still do use topicals for those patients who just are needle averse and it's just the only thing that worked for them. Yeah. But by and large, what I see is a usually higher cost of medication, a burden of therapy and potential side effects are, are the same, but without the optimization of levels. Gotcha. So I often see kind of a mediocre biochemical response. Yeah. And so I don't use that often. Okay. Pellets, um, they have great marketing behind them. Uh, problem is they just don't live up to that market. So the general gist of a pellet commercial says that it's a natural-based testosterone, it's bioidentical, and you only have to get treatment a few times a year, and just flowery, wonderful yeah. marketing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem is it's, it's not entirely natural, so a lot of the pellets are just completely, from the beginning, um, synthetic, which the testosterone we use in injections is also synthetic. Okay. But the, the base is sometimes made from a plant sterile which is kind of the basis of a, a testosterone or a, a hormone of, of the, the same like. But then it still has to be lab manipulated for your body to be able to absorb it. So you've already taken a, a natural substance and adulterated it to some degree so that your body can utilize it because it's not the same as a testosterone that's in your body. Right. So the more accurate term when people talk about bioidenticals is really biomimetic, right? So it's not the exact same molecule. Nobody's treating testosterone deficiency with human testosterone. They're still using some variant of a lab-manipulated substance, and it's going to hook onto the same receptor site, and it's going to mimic the same response that the body would have if naturally produced testosterone was given to that same subject. Okay. Right? Yeah. So there are times when bioidentical matters over synthetic, especially for me when that we're talking about treating women with estrogen progesterone, I do prefer the bioidenticals. Okay. But for testosterone, it's really a moot point. Okay. Right? So the, um, um, the issue there is just making sure that we are using the, the right modality. So there's that that is already kind of nixed off of their marketing line, right? Yeah. The next is that it has a, uh, the, ability to be used only a few times a year. Now, uh, the problem there is it depends on how quickly you metabolize the medication. They will also tell you that these pellets are time-released. They're also not time-released. They're all the same. So if they're putting up to usually 12 is the limit of, of pellets in a man, they're gonna give you 12 right now pellets. In other words, they're going to dissolve at the same rate. They're not giving you a couple of one-month pellets and a couple of two-month pellets and a couple of three-month pellets because we don't have the technology to make the coating that's going to dissolve in such a regimented fashion. Okay. Right? They're giving you 12 of the exact same pellets. And the idea they there, do that. They do, do you get them all at once? All at once. Yeah, so the process Different is, points in your body? Is that how they do it? Just one spot. Wow. <laughs> so, so they actually use a trocar, 
which is a, a surgical device. So yeah. it's a minor surgical procedure, but they make an incision. This is usually on the buttock. And so uh, below the waistline, they're going to make an incision. They insert the trocar. They'll numb you up first. But this trocar is basically a blunt metal object that creates a pocket okay. in the space, the subcutaneous plane between the skin and the muscle. Okay. And then they're going to insert these pellets in it, sew you up or glue you down. And How big are these pellets? pellets? The pellets are probably the, the width of a pinky nail and only a couple millimeters. In, in, uh, think of it as like a, an elongated... Uh, capsule or caplet that you might take. Uh, okay. From, you know, one, one of the tiny little skinny ones you might get okay. from like an ibuprofen or something gotcha. of that nature. But they are pellets and there is a, a physical substance to them, right? So mm-hmm. that now you have that to deal with. Uh, the body can reject them. They can actually extrude those pellets. Think about those times when you're a kid and you broke glass and got it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Three months later, your body's pushing it out. Yep. Same thing can happen. Okay. Here, right. Or you can just have a negative reaction. The problem with pellets is that once they're there they do start to liquefy pretty quickly so there's no getting them out so if you if you have a bad reaction you're just gonna have to ride that that train oh, because wow. it, it's just there yeah. uh, <clears throat> and then again they're putting a large amount of testosterone in you at one time and so the idea is that it will just dissolve slowly yeah. over that the course of the, the next three world. to four to maybe six months I'll tell you that I've never seen anybody that actually gets to, gets to that six-month mark. Usually it's every three to four months you're going in for a re-implantation. Mm-hmm. But even that four-month or three-month window doesn't look steady. Your numbers skyrocket in the first month. Okay. And that super high level might make some patients feel really good. Right. But it's also exposing them to a lot of risk. Right. So then it plummets like a rock thereafter. So usually about three months in, you're feeling awful and you've got to do the process all over. And then cost is another issue. Um, I would say the most nationally recognizable uh, people in the space would be BioT. <clears throat> it used to be Sotapelli. So those, they're the ones who are just pushing that out. The other problem with that is that they've created a model that is really just geared to put in more revenue to a doctor's practice. Okay. So uh, what I mean by that is they tell you which, which labs to order, mm-hmm. and you punch those lab results into their their algorithm, their software, and that software tells you how many pellets to put in your patient and on the way they go. So it's not really engaging the brain of most of those providers. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but I'm saying when you create that kind of system, it favors that. Yeah, it favors sure. an environment where they're not really thinking through this and they're not going through the practice of medicine. They're just knee-jerk reacting to whatever the computer tells them mm-hmm. to do. Right? I mean, that's... That's monkey medicine. That's just not something that is really focused on your patient again. Right? Yeah. It's just it's there to create a revenue stream. And the moment that patients are looked at as revenue streams, you're going to have a degradation of patient care, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah that so that's the, that, that's the one modality that I recommend against. Yeah. Um, so, so you do not do injections? We do not. We do not do pellets. No pellets. Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, so... Uh, in the same vein of uh, you know, kind of the the reason you do not do pellets, um, the side effects of uh, hormone therapy, yeah, or testosterone therapy. So I tell everybody that once you put testosterone in the body, it's going to follow the same route that it would if it was naturally produced. So that means testosterone is going to become one of two active metabolites. One is an estrogen called estradiol. We often refer to it as E two. There's E one, E two, E three, but it becomes estradiol or it becomes an androgen called dihydrotestosterone, or DHT. So those two metabolites, the fact that testosterone makes you make more red blood cells, increasing the thickness or the viscosity of your blood, Mm -hmm. and raising what's called your hematocrit, 
and the fact that testosterone, if you're male, can influence your prostate and make it larger or other issues can occur, and the fact that it suppresses fertility and then can have an effect on the testes. Those are the, the, the encapsulated side effects that we see. Those are things that we know can happen. And again, there's mitigation points for all of this. For testosterone becoming estradiol, aromatase is the, the name of the enzyme that takes testosterone and makes it into estradiol. For a male patient, that's where we get our estrogen. Now, female patients, aromatization does occur. There is that transfer of testosterone into estrogen, but their ovaries, if they're, are, if they're active, are where they get the vast majority of their estrogen. Okay. Right? But for our male patients, we may need to gate down the production of that estrogen at some point. We don't want too little, because if we don't have enough estrogen, even though we classically kind of think of estrogen as a female hormone and testosterone as a male hormone, right. both sexes need both hormones. So we don't want too little estrogen. If we do have too little estrogen, we can have issues like you might see with somebody who's going through menopause. Hot flashes, joint aches, osteoporosis, depressive mood swings, sexual dysfunction can all occur if your estrogen levels are too low. Okay. But we don't want to just let it run rampant because if it's too high, we can also have sexual dysfunction on that side. The mood changes here tend toward irritability. Again, the roid rage thing, right? right? right. And then also you can have fluid retention, which begets weight gain, bloating and then finally you can have gynecomastia which is the estrogenic influence of the male breast tissue into growth of breast tissue okay so since we don't want to be growing moobs we right. want to make sure that no that's, moves no moves no we moves. want to make sure that that's in check and so we might use an aromatase inhibitor typically we use an astrazole or the name brand is a Rimidex, and that will episodically reduce the amount of testosterone that's being converted into estradiol so that there is a better balance between testosterone and estrogen Gotcha. gotcha. So that again, pretty pretty easy to dial in there. That's a tablet form medication. We added to therapy depending on how much you need or when you need it. That can that can vary from patient to patient. Okay. <clears throat> on the uh, hematocrit side, the blood thickness, testosterone through its effects on hepcidin, which is a, a a peptide hormone from the liver that regulates iron absorption, it allows the body to claim more iron into it and so that means that once there's more iron available the bone marrow sees it and says hey let's make more red blood cells right to a degree this is good red blood cells carry hemoglobin hemoglobin yep. carries oxygen oxygen is what your body needs to thrive and survive just call, right? me, just call me lance yes <laughs> exactly I mean. and this is exactly where blood doping comes in right so all that that whole process comes in but the proliferation of that if it just keeps skyrocketing then that can be a problem so while somebody who lives in Colorado versus here in the DFW area, they're going to naturally have a higher hematocrit. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's okay if it's 60. It's normal in most tests up to around 50%. I prefer to keep my patients under 50%. My rule of thumb here is if it gets up to 52%, then that's when I'm going to say, hey, we need to start donating blood to get okay. rid of some of these extra red blood cells. If it were to hit 54% per the endocrine, guideline, endocrine society guidelines, we need to do something about that. We need to either halt therapy, change therapy, do something. Yeah. Now, this the percentage I'm talking about is if I take a whole blood sample, put it in a tube, spin it around in a centrifuge, the solid part is going to sink to the bottom, the fluid part is going to float on top. Whatever portion of that is made up by the solid part, that's your hematocrit. Okay. So if 45% of your blood is solid red blood cells and there's just the serum floating on top, then that's your hematocrit. And that's, so, and that's within <clears throat> the acceptable level correct. for you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, Things that contribute to an increased hematocrit are usually what makes this a problem. That uh, things that contribute to an increased hematocrit that are not testosterone, 
but are coinciding with testosterone replacement therapy is what usually the problem is. Okay. So sleep apnea is the biggest culprit here. Okay. If you're not sleeping well at night because of sleep apnea, that means your body's not exchanging oxygen the way that it should be. Usually this means that the the musculature or the tongue, the, the upper airway is clamping down on that what should be otherwise open and painted airway. And so you're going for long periods of time at times without breathing. Often the patient doesn't even really waken to consciousness to know that. This is where you might start giving that elbow on the side from your spouse or your mate saying, hey, quit snoring or you yeah. go sit in the other room, that kind of thing. But snoring means that there's vibration of the tissue in the upper airway as air tries to move through either in or out. Yeah. So that's where the sound comes from. Um, but what that means is there's impedance of airflow. Okay. So Obviously not a good thing. Not a good thing. So that means that the body is put into a low oxygen state. Right. So it's as if you were taking a stroll through your neighborhood, but you're only breathing every third time or every other time that you need to. Yeah. And obviously your body would be under a lot of stress no in that thanks. situation. Right? Yeah. So the body responds by trying to claim more oxygen from the environment. Well, it does that by making more red blood cells because again, oxygen gets onto the hemoglobin, onto yeah. the red blood cell, into the tissue. Okay. So it's just trying to balance things out, yeah. but we're not helping it by just letting snoring become a big problem, right? And so apnea means you're not breathing at all. So sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea means there's an obstruction in the upper airway that's causing you to not breathe. Mm -hmm. If we don't fix that, if we don't acknowledge that, then nothing else really matters. Testosterone replacement therapy really isn't going to help you all that much until you fix that. Yeah, actually, so, it could probably hinder it. And, and it could even be the more, right? it could be the cause of it, even. Right? Yeah, you, okay. you could have totally normal testosterone production, but you have untreated or undertreated sleep apnea, and that could be the reason you're teasing. Wow. Right. So you have to look at again all of that in context with everything else. Um, the that, but that's when we will often see it. You know, if somebody doesn't check the box that they're snoring, I'm not going home and watching them sleep, obviously. Right, <laughs> so right. I just have to wait till something comes up, and this is when we'll see that. That's when yeah. we'll see your every kind of bump. Uh, and then we'll know, hey, we, we need to get you in for a sleep study. We need to kind of take care of this part, too. Uh, but that's, that's when you start seeing more problems. When somebody is a, a sleep apnea patient that's under or, or untreated, and or smokers, heavy smokers, same thing. Oh, when, you, okay. when you smoke, um, you're inhaling carbon monoxide, mm -hmm. right? And then your red blood cells, your hemoglobin binds to carbon monoxide at an affinity rate that's 200 times that of what it would bind to oxygen with. Wow. So it prefers carbon monoxide, but carbon monoxide doesn't help your body, right? right. You're, not, yeah. It's, yeah. you're not breathing just because you're breathing in carbon we, monoxide. We haven't adapted to that yet. Yeah, exactly. So that means if you're smoking a lot, Often, then you're also in a, a low oxygen state throughout the day. Your body's going to make more red blood cells to compensate. So now we're adding two fuels to the same fire. Yes, testosterone's making you make more and red blood cells. Smokers are out of breath all you the got, time. Yeah. And, and the, plus the effects and, on lungs, yeah, right? Yeah, the lungs the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that kind of uh, contributes to this, the same cause or problem. And so that, that's where the hematocrit comes in. Now, the reason I even worry about that is because if your hematocrit increases and continues to do so, essentially if I'm negligent in my job and I let that number get really high, mm -hmm. then I'm directly increasing the viscosity of the blood, which means I'm also directly increasing the possibility of intravascular clotting. So clotting inside of my blood vessel is a really, really bad thing, right? Yeah. We're talking about a deep vein thrombosis in your leg or a pulmonary embolism in your lung or a heart attack or yeah. a stroke. Those things exist in a potential... Uh, environment that we don't ever really touch so they are very remote possibilities but we definitely want to keep this on the dashboard right yeah. so your hematocrit is important when you are 
on testosterone replacement therapy, especially if you have some of these other comorbidities or other problems alongside your testosterone deficiency. Um, now, the other side of the, the active metabolite is uh, the DHT, dihydrotestosterone. So 5-alpha reductase is the enzyme that takes testosterone and makes it into DHT. Uh, DHT gets a lot of press because of the hair follicle thing. We, we hear, that, oh, DHT levels are why you're bald. Okay. That's not true. Your genetics are why you might be bald. Right? Okay. Yes, DHT might be the trigger, but it's the pulling the trigger of a loaded gun that's loaded by our genetics. So it just makes it happen faster. Exactly. Basically. So you might be able to hold onto your hair a little bit longer if you have low testosterone levels. But guess what? You're suffering with low testosterone symptoms. <laughs> okay. So there's a trade-off there. It's for those few individuals who are genetically predisposed to balding, but they haven't bald, gone bald yet because their testosterone levels are in the dirt. Mm. Congratulations, you have a hair full of, a head full of hair, but you, you know, are feel on like, the couch you feel like and yeah, you feel yeah. off. Right. So then, then there's that balance. For that that particular patient, which I'd say is a small percentage of the population, if I raise your testosterone levels, I'll raise your DHT levels and yeah, you might lose hair faster. But yeah. typically we don't see a big change here. But DHT can also affect the sebaceous gland activity. So when DHT levels go up, oil producing glands become more active. That means dry skin can become more healthy. It means normal skin can become more oily, and more oily skin with more active sebaceous glands can induce the trapping of bacteria and then dirt into the pores, and now we have acne. Mm-hmm. Now, cystic acne is that deeper, more painful acne, so that's the kind of stuff we want to avoid. And the levels that we replace to, and the optimal, the normal levels that we replace to, I really don't see much of that happen. Yeah. Typically, over-the-counter measures work really well to curtail that, so we're talking about like salicylic acid washes, you know, Neutrogena oil-free okay. acne wash is what I usually recommend, or Cetaphil bar soap. So those things usually knock that out. Occasionally, I might need to write prescriptions to manage that, but that's pretty rare. Okay. Then finally, again, for our male patients, um, the DHT will influence your prostate. So the prostate and your testosterone levels, that relationship has been really misunderstood for a long time. It used to be thought that testosterone causes prostate cancer. We know that to not be the case now. Uh, but there is a relationship. Because most prostate cancers like testosterone and will grow more rapidly in the face of higher testosterone levels, we need to be careful here. If testosterone levels go up, like I said before, DHT levels go up, and that means there's more stimulation to the prostate. So that means when I raise that up, I'm probably going to make the prostate grow a little bit. Okay. That does not mean that it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger just because we stay on testosterone. We're just getting a course correction of sorts, right? We're mm-hmm. getting back on track. So your your prostate is smaller than it would have been if your testosterone levels were normal. Now it gets back to what should be normal size. Okay. okay. But if in the rare case that there's an undiagnosed cancer in that pretreatment prostate, and then I ramp up your testosterone levels, and that's one of the prostate cancers that likes, likes testosterone, mm-hmm. again, it's going to grow more rapidly. It's yeah. going to grow more aggressively. So that could be a big problem. Right. That's never happened in our practice. Knock on something here. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That's right there. <laughs> there you go. The that that is why we watch it because that can happen, but it just it's just not something that's a common occurrence. Now most of our patients are south of sixty, so okay. the likelihood of them getting um, prostate cancer is lower. But it's something again we need to be very careful of watching. So for patients who have a PSA, a prostate specific antigen that is above a certain threshold, if they're over the age of 40 and they're on testosterone, they need to start having that annual rectal exam to make sure the prostate is doing well. 
and then we are checking their PSA every 90 days at least. Via blood work? Via blood work, okay. yeah. So the prostate-specific okay. antigen is a blood test that was made to look for prostate cancer. However, it's specific to the prostate, not the cancer. So it goes up with prostate cancer, but it also goes up with infection, inflammation, trauma of the prostate, riding a bicycle seat that's too hard for too long, recent sexual activity. Okay. These all can affect your, your PSA. Oh, wow. So it's important to note that we don't want to just knee-jerk into you know, complete chaos just because our PSA bumped a little bit. Yeah. But we also want to treat it with the appropriate amount of respect. Okay. Then when I talk about how testosterone is made, I often refer to it as just kind of a fancy inventory management system. Right? So you have the hypothalamus at the center of the brain that commands what happens in the pituitary gland, which is called our master gland, mm-hmm. that then controls an hormonal organ. In the case of testosterone, that's either going to be the testes for men or the ovaries for women. Right. But the upper part of that pathway is the same. Gonadotropin releasing hormone comes from the hypothalamus and it tells the pituitary gland to release luteinizing hormone, a follicular stimulating hormone, to tell the gonads, again, either the ovaries or the testes, to produce testosterone, sperm for men, and then of course ovarian follicle stimulation for women, or the eggs, ovarian eggs uh, for women. So when we put testosterone in the system because you have deficiency, which by the way can be a primary hypogonadism, which means the testes are failing to produce, or secondary hypogonadism where the brain is failing to appropriately induce production, then the way we treat is by putting testosterone in the system. But even though that broken system didn't seem to be reacting normally, once we put testosterone in it, the brain says, I've got everything I need. I don't need to produce anymore. So that gonadotropin-releasing hormone at GnRH levels fall. Mm. For male patients, those LH and FSH levels fall, right? Because we're, we're just looking for that testosterone to come back to the brain and yeah. our inventory management loop falters. So that means our natural production that is already low, we should only be intervening in broken systems, but if our testosterone levels are already low going into therapy, they actually become lower when it comes to the natural production. But we maintain testosterone levels where they should be through therapy. Right. Since we're taking the, the jobs away from the testes, if you will, the, the production of testosterone and sperm are being taken away from it, that means, of course, fertility falls, and so that can be a concern. There are ways to mitigate that too, but the, um, the one of the other issues that we can run into is a decrease in the size or the firmness of the testes. That becomes really just aesthetics. If it bothers a patient, then we treat it. If it doesn't bother you, we don't. Mm. Uh, because <clears throat> if you are past the point of caring about fertility, then it really is just aesthetics. Yeah. Well, we haven't got, as a society, to balls out genes being the norm. Right. So <laughs> you got it. I don't think there'd probably be too much of a concern there. Yeah, if the sag starts coming in the front, we got problems. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from you know, from a from a uh, just an overall overall well being perspective, um, I would think that would be a very minor um, side effect. Sure, you know? it, it depends on what you're doing. Like uh, but, yeah. my my workout is on a jujitsu mat, so I, I'm rolling a couple times a week at least, and. Some, sometimes a smaller target in the area is not a bad thing, you know, it's just, it, that's okay with me. Yeah, yeah if I'm you're an totally, underwear model, maybe, yeah, you know, right. maybe that is a bad thing. If you're a scrotum you. model, you might have to rethink the problem, but uh, I haven't met one yet, thank goodness. Oh, man, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, you know, I think, um, you know, we've covered a lot here. I know, man, we could get into so much more, but, I, you know, I think that just just from, a, you know, a, an overarching um approach or, or view of you know the symptoms both male and female that you can you can uh, experience with 
your hormones being out of whack. We've got fatigue uh, and overall just you know increasing level of fatigue throughout the course of the day. Uh, libido is affected negatively. Um, your mental cognition, uh, sleep, motivation or lack thereof to just do the things that you used to be you know able to do and feel good about doing on a regular basis. Body comp changes for the worse. Um, and then irritability levels kind of going up. And then of course, specific to men, erectile dysfunction. Um, you know, all of those symptoms sounds like they could be addressed by obviously getting tested by uh, a knowledgeable source uh, or practitioner um, who's going to actually take a hard look at those numbers and the symptoms that someone's explaining to you and be able to give, give them a very real um, answer of, hey, what it is, it's probably what, what, what they need to do to address that, right? right? Uh, versus just going in and you know, thinking they need to be on testosterone because their buddy's on it mm -hmm. and see their buddy's getting all the gains in the gym. <laughs> and so they go in and they tell, you know, Augie, oh yeah, I'm feeling this and I'm feeling that. And this is, you know, I don't have this and I don't, and I don't have that. Trying to say all the right things yep. to get put on therapy, right? right? I mean, I'm sure you may, you've yep. probably seen that, right? But, yep. I, you know, with your approach, you're, you're taking a look at the labs, you're taking a look at the symptoms, you're hearing what the patient's telling you. And I think you probably got a pretty keen sense of, what's what's what and what's not for sure you know when somebody's yeah. lats are pressing their arms out so they yeah. have to enter the door sideways right right i know that's probably not my patient. yeah yeah well <laughs> I, I got ils so you know, right. about that for me um and then you know we did cover some of the side effects of um uh you know hermaticrit your blood level being very thick and the, and, the, and the you know the potential negatives of that in which those can be addressed yes. um, dht uh, issues going higher, um, skin issues that can occur just, you know, depending on your type of skin that you already have, prostate concerns, but again, um, you know, the prostate cancer, uh, I guess, fear that testosterone therapy caused prostate cancer, you've, you've, you know, you covered why that is not the case. Um, and then fertility issues that can, that can be um, a concern for folks. But but I think, uh, again, the, the overall um, message that is, if you're experiencing any of these symptoms, it, it's not gonna hurt you to go get looked at um, and, and tested, Correct. right? So that you have a better handle on what really is going on with you. Um, you may just have sleep apnea, right? Right. So, and that could be affecting you know, uh, a lot of things. Um, or you could legitimately have low, low test, you got the low T. That's and, right. <laughs> uh, you know, which can be obviously playing havoc, uh, uh, you know, on every other um, important system in your body. So let's real quick just uh, loop this all in and, and let's tell people how to get a hold of you. Sure. Um, you know, anyone who's thinking about getting getting uh, tested, I think, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got this these concerns, what are you waiting for, right? Sure. I always drive people to our website just because I've always sought to put information there that was educational. Right, I want the contemplative patient. I want the person who's thinking through this, uh, kind of what you alluded to earlier. I don't want you coming in just because you, this is the quick fix, because right. that's not what we're about. And that's not the long-term patient anyway. I want to do my best work, and to do that I need the, the patient's gonna be on the same page with me, right? Yeah. So the website is tctmed.com. So that's Tango Charlie, Tango Mike Echo Delta.com. Um, so I would say start there. If you get on Google or you go to YouTube and you type in TRT for testosterone replacement therapy, TRT 101, a video that is covers a lot of the stuff we covered here and is basically a 
a reiteration of my new patient uh, explanation. It's there. It's about a 20-minute video, so it's not super short, but it's very informative. You can do that, or you can call our 1-800 number, which is 888-828-4300, so 888-TCT-4300. All right, and tctmed.com. You got it. All right. Good deal. And obviously, depending on where they're coming from, Prosper, Frisco, Louisville, Flower Mound, and... Uh, what do we miss? Hearst? Hearst. There we go. Yeah, Hearst. Okay, yes. Yes. Um, so you, you got the Metroplex pretty pretty well covered with those five locations. Yes, sir. Um, well, Augie, I do appreciate you coming out. Absolutely. Thank you um, you gave, gave us a great amount of information. And I know, obviously, there's probably a, you know somebody out there that is going to end up hearing this and uh, take some action and, and hopefully get themselves... You know, moving in the right direction because you know if you've been going a certain way and all of a sudden things just don't seem normal but there's really no apparent reason for that you know it can be very frustrating so um, i think this can be very beneficial to a lot of people both men and women so i thank you I for agree. coming out and spending some time with us today you're very welcome again thank you for having me no problem at all we'll see you soon all right sounds good